to another edition of the Around the Block podcast from Coinbase. I'm your host, Justin Mart. And this week, we've got a pretty timely topic. We're talking about the crisis in Ukraine and specifically the outpouring all around the world of people looking to help with what's happening. In response, the Ukrainian government has actually solicited crypto donations. A bit of a first, a nation state requesting crypto donations. And to date, we've seen over $60 million raised from crypto participants around the world. So this week, I'm talking with Tom Robinson. He is the co-founder and chief scientist of Elliptic. This is a firm that provides blockchain analytics to crypto businesses. And ever since the crisis began, they've been providing daily reports of what's happening in crypto donations to Ukraine. We're gonna talk about this and get into all the details. Here we go. Tom, to start things off, actually, I'm really curious to hear if you, if you could just share a little bit of your background uh, and kind of where you're at in crypto today and what led to all of this interesting insights on what's happening with Ukraine donations. Absolutely. So my background is I used to be a physicist, an academic physicist, but heard about Bitcoin in sort of 2011-ish and started Elliptic with a couple of friends in 2013. And we really wanted to help crypto to go mainstream. And the way that we wanted to do that was to help the with the issue around financial crime in cryptocurrencies. And we saw the ability to use blockchain analytics to help regulated businesses such as exchanges to identify proceeds of crime, for example, and therefore meet their, their regulatory obligations. So um, that's what Elliptic does. We provide products that help uh, crypto exchanges and financial institutions to uh, meet their regulatory obligations. Love it. So you're a physicist by heart, though. That's funny. I actually have a degree in nuclear engineering as well. So right. from one fellow uh, physics math aficionado to another here in the crypto industry. That's great. Great. Yeah. So I was doing laser physics. So oh, laser yeah, okay. playing around with well, a, yeah. a massive laser. Nuclear engineering to lasers to crypto. You know, it all works out, right? That's great. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. In 2013, 2014, uh, yeah, I think I remember Elliptic being founded and then Chainalysis shortly thereafter as well. And I remember thinking, man, this is a, such an interesting problem because you have this open data set. Back then, it was just Bitcoin, but it's an open data set. You can always watch where the transfers are going. That data set is always public and open, but it's shrouded in like mystery because the addresses are just a bunch of pseudo random characters. You don't know who owns what. But with some forensics, with some fancy math and some you know sleuthing of sorts, you could probably figure out who is behind those transactions. And it's been fascinating to watch that industry grow into what it is today. You co-founded Elliptic. And so you're one of the premier experts on what's actually happening on the blockchain, right? Yeah, we do a huge amount of research into who is using cryptocurrency and for what purpose in general. So we have that insight into what's going on in, term, in terms of the crypto ecosystem, but also um, more specifically, um, we're able to trace uh, funds on the blockchain and identify wallets um, um, and link them to, to identities. Great. So we're going to get into a lot of really interesting stuff happening around crypto donations and a lot of the geopolitical conflict around Ukraine and Russia. Um, but just at the outset, you know, I'd love to hear from your perspective, how confident are you in this data? Because we're not 100% certain that, you know, this many unique people are donating. We know that this many addresses are donating, but not people. Like, that's one area where there's a bit of sort of gray, you know, wiggle room there. So I'm just curious from your perspective, like, when we do report these metrics, how confident are you in those numbers? 
Yeah, so that's a good point. So in blockchain analytics in general, um, there is a problem of attribution. So how do we know that a given crypto wallet or address is actually controlled or used by a specific entity or actor? Um, and some of that we do through you know, first-hand first evidence. So we might see, for example, that the Ukrainian government are fundraising um, through a specific crypto address. And we know that because they put it out on their official Twitter account. Um, but beyond that, we also use more advanced techniques to do something called clustering. So that's inferring other addresses that the Ukrainian government might also control, might also lie within their, their wallet. And um, those techniques are fundamentally probabilistic. And so there is um, a certain level of uncertainty about that. Now, we do test those techniques. And so we're able to just um, use the, the ones which we are very, very confident about. Um, and then the separate issue of um, what you just described, which is how do we know how many donors there were, for example, to a certain fundraising campaign? And the fact is we don't, right? We, we know how many transactions they received. We don't know whether multiple transactions were actually made by um, the same individual, um, especially if an individual is using different accounts, different wallets to make those donations from. So yes, th th there is certainly some um, uncertainty involved. However, having said that, we're, in this case, we're extremely confident in the numbers, so how much the Ukrainian government has actually received. Yeah. It's a little bit of a case-by-case -case basis, too. If you're looking at something where people have a reason to be more private or try to fudge the numbers by using many different addresses themselves, then we need to be a little bit more concerned about the data being misleading. In this case, I don't think people have a motivation to use many different addresses to donate to, you know, the Ukraine DAO or what have you. We ha we have seen different numbers reported by different parties, and I think that comes down to the uh, methodology you use, especially when you're coming up with a U.S. dollar figure. So, do you use which exchange rate do you use? Do you use the exchange rate at the time that each individual donation was made, or do you look at the current value of all the donations? That, given the, the volatility of crypto prices, that can give very different answers. Yeah, spoken like a true physicist, right? I come from the same background, and so anytime we look at data, I'm like, okay, but where are the edge? You know, what, what are the boundaries? What are the gray areas? And oh yeah, if you're turning into U.S. dollars, like how how does that change things? So I'm yeah. glad that you're the one uh, who's <laughs> kind of going to tell us the truth here today, because I know you've thought about all the edge cases. So I'm really curious. Um, you know, I've been passively following what's happening with you know Ukraine and the crypto donations happening there, but let's set the stage, right? Can you trace kind of what's happened with the Ukrainian government soliciting crypto donations and sort of, you know, the, the trace of history here? Yes. So I could. So the Ukrainian government started soliciting crypto donations on the 26th of February, so two days after the invasion began. However, crypto fundraising does actually have quite a long history in the, the overall uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. So actually, this started with uh, Russia-backed separatists in Ukraine fundraising in crypto back in 2014. So these are um, people in certain areas of the east of Ukraine who are, um, actually supported Russia um, and fighting against Ukraine. And they were, they were fundraising in crypto, yeah, 2014 to 2016. They didn't raise very much, 
uh, on the order of thousands of dollars worth. But that's that's the first time this conflict and this type of fundraising has been seen. I've got to pause um, you here, actually, and ask a question. Um, 2014, that's a long time ago. That's when crypto was still very nascent. Was there a reason why they were soliciting crypto donations? Yeah, it's a good question. You're right. That occurred to me as well. That it was very progressive and, and sort of very technically um, capable of them to be to be doing this. Um, so it surprised me too. To be honest, I'm not sure why they use crypto specifically, and it wasn't particularly successful. Um, so yeah, that's not clear to me. Hmm. Maybe just like a crypto forward, you know, person in that community decided to throw up an address and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. quite possibly, quite possibly. Um, and then fast forward a couple of years. Um, a number of NGOs within Ukraine um, that were focused on defending uh, the country from the threat of Russia started also to, to fundraise in crypto. So in particular, an NGO called Come Back Alive, which um, fundraised the Ukrainian military. And this was a few years ago where the Ukrainian military actually wasn't very well equipped um, and it needed support from uh, private donations. So the NGO is called Come Back Alive because that's what they used to write on the bulletproof vests that they donated to the military. Um, and that organization is still active today and still receiving uh, significant crypto donations. But as I said, it was the 26th of February where this um, started being adopted by Ukrainian government itself. And to my knowledge, this is the first time that an actual nation state or government has publicly fundraised through crypto. So I think it was a bit of a, a watershed moment. You know, we'll talk about headline figures in a moment, but I'm also just curious, like, is the crypto community more like likely to donate? Are they just a more donation happy group? Or is it just tapping into a different funding source? Um, I mean, I, I note that in 2017, I mean, crypto's definitely had a history of crowdfunding. Like 2017, the ICO era was all about crowdfunding. We had a seminal moment when this person behind um, one of the United States, uh, I actually forget the financial hearing, what happened, but somebody threw up a QR code and said, buy Bitcoin. Right. And, and that was a seminal moment. And then another person had a QR code at a football game, and he got just a bunch of money, people throwing money at him to demonstrate the power of crypto. So maybe there's right. always kind of been this undercurrent of like, yo, crypto can be used to send money across the globe with no boundaries. Nobody can censor you off of it. And so it's almost an ideal crowdfunding platform. And so maybe yeah. this is just like the real coming out party, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think there's probably a few reasons um, why they fundraised in crypto. I think, first of all, I think there is a lot of disposable outcome and disposable um, wealth out there uh, being held in crypto. Um, and That's so it's a good audience point, yeah. to target. Um, <laughs> It's also fundamentally censorship resistant. So we've seen organizations in Ukraine um, have their fundraising blocked by crowdfunding platforms, by payments companies. And of course, that's not possible with crypto. There's no intermediary who can decide who should and shouldn't use Bitcoin, for example, to, to fundraise in this way. Um, and then finally, I think it's a very rapid way of getting donations from abroad. Um, and I, th I think that was particularly um, attractive to the, the government. So yeah, I think yeah. those three key reasons. What are the numbers? What has the you know Ukraine DAO? Actually, first off, what is the Ukraine DAO now? I mean, you mentioned this uh, Comeback Alive NGO, but uh, now there's a Ukraine DAO, right? Yeah, so there are actually a number of organizations and fundraising campaigns. The two that we focused on tracking is Comeback Alive, the NGO, and the Ukrainian government itself. 
So um, in total, those two organizations have raised $59.2 million since the, the invasion began on the 24th of February, um, of which um, the Ukrainian government has raised uh, $51 million. And, and so that peaks on the 2nd of March. Over the past few days, um, the donations have died off a bit. I think that peak on the, the, the 2nd of March um, was related to the um, the, the airdrop that was suggested might take place on that date. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but real quick, too, let's just trace the history or trace the kind of flow of funds here, right? So um, if I donate to the Ukraine DAO or the Ukrainian government and, uh, you know, they get they get crypto. What do they do with the crypto? Like, what is the do they put it back into dollars? Do they sit on it? How do they end up using it? Yeah, so these wallets are actually being managed on behalf of the Ukrainian government by an exchange called Kuna. Um, which is based in Ukraine. And they are helping uh, the government there to receive these donations, but also spend it. And so what they've disclosed um, to date is that they are using these funds to buy supplies for the military in Ukraine. Um, they haven't shared exactly what's been purchased for security reasons, but we know that it is specifically for, for the military. Um, and they've also... Um, describe, well, they've also stated that in the majority of cases, they are actually able to purchase things with crypto uh, directly. So in most cases, they don't need to exchange it back, uh, back into fiat in order to spend it. And I think they, they've gone to their suppliers and said they prefer to, to um, pay in crypto. And I think a lot of them, a lot of the suppliers aren't doing this, you know, for money. They're doing it to to, to help the cause, and so um, have worked out how to receive crypto and how to handle wow. crypto payments. That's a bit of a seminal moment as well. Uh, you know, we, we've always known that this technology uh, to use crypto as payments in an end to end fashion would work and would work well. But we haven't had a motivation from people outside the crypto sphere to actually adopt crypto as a method of receiving payment. In this case, exactly, yeah. it's a bit of a, hey, now it has to happen. And so they're figuring it out. And so I actually call this a little bit of a, a domino falling for crypto here. It's very interesting. Definitely, yeah. There is a, a strong willingness to accept crypto in, in these circumstances. And so they've got over the you know, the administrative or technical dif difficulties of actually doing it. And I've, I've just done it. Hmm. Interesting. The other thing that I like about crypto as a donation tool, crowdfunding tool, is that it's public, right? And we talked about this earlier with Elliptic and how you guys help demystify the sort of pseudo-anonymity of the blockchain. Um, but for me, as somebody donating money to Ukraine, well, I have some transparency and auditability into what happens to those funds. I know that, well, all that money went to Ukraine, right? And I know that, oh, you know, they're not going off and buying NFTs with it or <laughs> shuttling it off into one guy's account and he, you know, buys a bunch of Lamborghinis or something, right? There's a little bit more of a traceability auditability there, which to me is powerful Absolutely. because if I donate via another platform, I don't know that. I just, you know, maybe the platform itself is a scam, you know? Absolutely, yeah. So everybody can see the total that has been raised um, by a given organization. Um, Ukraine actually did yesterday, though, also post a Monero donation address. Um, so it's not possible to monitor how much has been received by that address. So there you're trading off, I guess, extra privacy for um, less auditability and, and traceability of what's going on. This is actually a really interesting topic that I want to get into, right? And it has to do with the airdrop. So I'll share a little bit of my perspective on this. Um, the reason why I think Monero is an important tool here is because 
let's say you're somebody in the Russian, you know, in that country, and you could face a lot of political pressure if it's found out that you were donating to Ukraine. Well, by the way, if you donate via Ethereum or Bitcoin, that record stands on the blockchain forever. They might not know it was your address today, but it might be known in the future. It might be uncovered somehow. Who knows how, right? But it's a possibility. And so there's always yeah. kind of this overhang for these people of, oh my gosh, if I donate via these public cryptocurrencies, well, it might come back to bite me. So that's where a tool like Monero or one of the private chains is actually very, very powerful because it can give you a measure of confidence that you can donate and nobody's actually going to know that you did that. Yes, absolutely. And I think there are other ways of maintaining that privacy as well. So for example, using a mixer, um, but yes, a privacy coin such as Monero or Zcash are certainly alternative ways of, of achieving that. I think on the flip side though, um, there is a trade-off um, based in terms of public order stability, but also how easy it is for the recipient to actually cash out. It's, it's much more difficult to, to cash out Monero through a regulated exchange than it is Bitcoin. So I think there is a trade-off. Yeah, it's certainly true. I mean, obviously there's a number of, of reasons why somebody would want to be private. I think most of them are for beneficial good reasons. But unfortunately, it also attracts people that want to be private because, hey, they're doing bad things. And so you're suddenly swimming in a pool with other illicit actors and exchanges have to be very careful about that pool of money because we got to make sure that we're not we're not facilitating bad activity. Right. So there's certainly trade offs and complications there, but it's still an important primitive. You need to have the ability to be private when you need to be private. And in this case, I think it's very powerful. So there's another aspect here, too, about, you know, the public nature of blockchains, and this donation. What I note, too, is, you know, they're actually not just cryptocurrencies donated. We saw a bunch of things donated, right? We saw a bunch of NFTs and like, do you, do you know exactly what happened over there? Yeah. So if we look at the the breakdown of which assets were donated, about about a third was Bitcoin, another third was Ether, and then the next biggest um, contribution was stable coins. So about seventeen percent of total donations in terms of value were stable coins such as Tether and USDC, um, and then. The rest is a mixture of Polkadot, Solana, uh, various um, tokens, um, and also NFTs. So over 200 NFTs um, were donated, um, of which by far the most value was a valuable was a CryptoPunk, um, which is worth over $200,000. So yes, that, that was a very significant single donation. I want to be bold here and speculate on why somebody would donate an NFT, right? And the first thought that I go to is, well, first off, it's really cool, right? Like you're giving an NFT that's art. It's and You can now like crowdfund with art, which is kind of cool. On the other hand, I got to wonder if like there's actually a bigger play in mind here for the people donating NFTs. It might not just be for the lulls, right? It might actually be, hey, if I donate this NFT out of my collection, well, suddenly the provenance of that NFT includes the Ukrainian government. And suddenly that NFT was used you know, for this cause that, you know, uh, this person cares about. Right. And so I wonder if they're just trying to make that collection more valuable because there's provenance associated with it. Um, yes. or in some case, even the crypto punk, it's like, look at that crypto punk was held by the Ukrainian government. It's always probably going to trade a little bit higher just because it has that provenance. So it, it's a very interesting mechanic here. Yeah. We, we see that happen very commonly. In fact, whenever there is a high profile, um, incident or a high profile account, we see we see people sending tokens to it, um, be they fungible or non-fungible tokens. And we think that a lot of the time that is simply to raise the profile of that token and to try to give it some additional value. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we certainly see this a lot. So I would guess that a lot of those NFTs donated were probably from smaller projects where they're trying to kind of get exposure to the project. 
But the case exactly, of the CryptoPunk yeah. is interesting, right? CryptoPunks are already established. A person gave up significant value, $200,000, right? And so there yes. it's inter interesting to think about that motivation, but yeah. Yeah, I would think the CryptoPunk was simply a, a genuine donation rather than an attempt to increase the value of that, that type For of sure. NFT. This behavior, though, also leads to, I think, the next surprising twist in this saga, right? It's around the airdrop. Uh, I wonder if you could paint, paint the scene for us. What, what happened with the airdrop? And then we'll talk about the scammer that, that occurred after. <laughs> yeah, so last Wednesday, the Ukrainian government tweeted that they were going to do an airdrop. Um, so this is where the sort of participants in a, a crypto community are given tokens. Um, so the, the assumption was anybody who had donated to the Ukrainian government would receive some new tokens uh, from them. Um, and donations surged in response to this. So in the sort of 24 hours after the airdrop was announced, the number of donations tripled. Did they announce what type of airdrop it would be? A token or an NFT? No, they didn't know. They just announced an airdrop. Um, and actually, by the next morning, they actually canceled the airdrop. Um, but before it was canceled, um, if, you, if you looked in a, an Ethereum block explorer, it looked as though the government's account was sending out new tokens to the donors. Um, but that wasn't actually what was going on. What, what actually happened was a third party, somebody had simply created a new token and was making it look as though the Ukrainian government's account was sending it out to, to the donors. And the motivation for doing that was presumably to give that token some value. Um, and in fact, we saw this, this token almost immediately being traded on decentralized exchanges such as Uniswap. Um, and you know, millions of dollars worth were sold presumably by whoever created that token and made it look as though it was the airdrop token. So it was a very interesting and imaginative scam, I would call it, um, basically taking advantage of people's um, expectation of an airdrop. Yeah, it's super disappointing to see somebody get greedy in this moment and unfortunately affect actual legitimate donations, right? Uh, there's a couple things that I want to note about this. I mean, first off, the Ukrainian government announces an airdrop and suddenly people donate a lot more. Um, but I also just want to pause for a moment on this airdrop mechanic because it's super fascinating. Traditional crowdfunding platforms outside of crypto don't really have a way to reward the participants in any powerful measure. But with crypto, there's this, this history of providing tokens or NFTs or things that represent your activity in a certain movement. And so in this case, an airdrop from the Ukrainian government makes so much sense. It's like, look, you, you, you gave to the Ukrainian government, great, let's give you a little NFT, let's give you a token, whatever it was going to be, I don't know, right? But that would always stand in the owner's address. And in fact, even if the owner did something or sold that NFT or you know, left, went away, that record is always in the blockchain, that you participated in this airdrop. And this, to me, shows a really fascinating element of crypto where all of this activity is composable with everything else. In other words, if I wanted to create a project and I wanted to reward the people that donated to Ukraine, well, I could airdrop my tokens or something from my protocol directly to those users. And it's super simple, super easy. And so this idea of like giving back or like virtuous giving, right, is, is a really, really clear pattern in crypto. And it makes so much sense for Ukraine. That's why I was so excited about the airdrop initially. It was like, man, yes, like I definitely want to have, you know, uh, you know, my participation in this be recorded somewhere. And, and you know, not, not because I want to get future gain out of it, but just because, look, it's an amazing thing to kind of have a, have a badge on. The unfortunate thing here is this scammer came in and kind of blew it all up.
Yeah. I think it's also interesting that this was an airdrop by a government. So the, the reason these airdrop tokens really have value is that people think they're scarce. And so the more trustworthy the issuer of the airdrop token, probably the more value, value they have. And so I guess this is a bit like fiat currency, right? This is a, a token issued by a government in the same way that fiat money is. Um, and that's what gives that, well, that's what gives fiat money its value, right? Your expectation that a, a nation state won't devaluing it by printing arbitrary amounts of it, which um, yeah, there's kind of two things to play, right? It generally it's, doesn't. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's kind of like look. On one hand, you get the social provenance and the social proof that you participate in this movement, and on the other hand, you get a coin that was issued by a sovereign nation that might actually end up be, being used in some utility in the future, in some way that we can't really imagine. And so you can obviously speculate on that second part as well and the value that accrues there, which makes you know this whole proposition really interesting. I'm super sad that they canceled the airdrop, though. Um, I wonder if they just got scared of you know the scams and, uh, and the reputational hit that this scammer provided, because they should still go through with it in my mind. You know, It's really disappointing that this scammer you know, created a fake token and made it look like it was theirs, and now they're scrapping the plans. Yeah, and um, maybe it was just that it was too too much of a, a left to do it. You know, obviously they are they're pretty busy at the moment, and maybe the mechanics of an airdrop was just too much to take on at that time. But instead, they did announce that they are going to sell NFTs. So um, it'd be interesting to see what form they take. Yeah, and actually, that's another great play, right? It almost accomplishes the exact same thing: buy an NFT from from Ukraine, and it's linked to the provenance of what's happening today. And yep. that NFT also could have utility, right? NFTs could, could look just like tokens in the way that they could be used for utility in the future. So the same type of idea. So I'm glad that they're going the NFT direction, um, yep. even though the airdrop, uh, unfortunately, hasn't panned out. Yep. Um, but and, I think, you know, the, the promise of an airdrop was very effective in terms of um, increasing the number of donations. So both the number of donations and the value went up significantly during that period. Um, absolutely. So... Taking a step back, right? This is the first time where you know uh, a, a sovereign nation has solicited crypto donations, and Web three and crypto has played maybe a more prominent role in the actual outcome of, of or the actual impact of what's happening on the ground. Um, just a quick context check for me: Was the sixty million dollars raised via crypto a significant amount? Um, how does it stack up to other traditional crowdfunding platforms? Like, how should I put that number into context? Um, it's a, a drop in the ocean uh, compared with other. Uh, well, it's, it's drop in the ocean compared with the fund, the donations that Ukraine is receiving in general. Um, so I saw yesterday the public in Holland, for example, have donated over $100 million to, to the Ukrainian cause. So it's it's relatively little, but I think it's symbolically really important. And I think we're going to see a huge amount of growth in this type of crypto fundraising. I think what's going to be interesting is where um, this type of crypto fundraising is used in the conflict, which maybe most people in the West don't agree with. You know, you know the core core concept behind crypto is anybody can do this. Nobody can stop it. What if next time it's Russia doing this, for example, how will we react? Will we call for more regulation of crypto? Will we call for crypto transactions to be blocked somehow? I think, I think that's going to be very interesting. Yeah. And I note 2014, you mentioned that it was the Russian separatists that used a Bitcoin address to solicit donations. Obviously that was too small, too immaterial. Nobody paid attention to it. 
But you're right, if the shoe was on the other foot in this case, how would we be reacting? This is a really important gut check too on just the power of the technology. Uh, one thing that I'm perpetually worried about is, you know, people will swing wildly back and forth between the value of crypto depending on the purpose it's being used for. And to put it in context, look, I mean, when the internet came out, it was very powerful for a bunch of bad actors. And there probably were people, you know, up in arms about it back then, but you can't lose sight of all the powerful ways the internet ended up being used and, and for all the good that it accomplished. And so one of my concerns is that, yeah, as you say, what if it was Russia that was doing this? We'd probably be up in arms about it, calling for regulation. But the important thing is the technology is so powerful that it can be really, really impactful for good in so many ways. And we cannot let the idea of it ever being used for bad to detract us from that. In fact, I think that it's impossible to create a new technology that is only used for good and never used for bad. That's simply not going to happen. And we have to look at things in a, the appropriate measure of balance. Absolutely. And, you know, even in this conflict, the, the, the flip side is there are concerns that Russia might use crypto for sanctions evasion. The fact is, crypto is, you know, the scale of crypto is too small for that to be a, a, a significant risk. Um, but there is the potential there, and that's something I think we should be aware of. Yeah. And that's obviously a, a much deeper topic as well, you know, how, how this could be used for sanctions evasion. As you say, you know, just to put it in crystal terms here, the amount of money flowing through crypto is not large enough at all to be able to hide the scale at which the Russian government would need to evade these sanctions. And also, by the way, you know, if you have crypto, you can't necessarily use it inside inside crypto. You have to exchange it back to rubles, back to dollars, back to some other fiat currency. And those endpoints are heavily regulated. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, exactly. I, I've heard a lot of talk about you know oligarchs using Monero, for example, to hide their wealth. But they're, in practice, they're not going to, going to be able to spend Monero. Or, or if if they are, they're going to have to convert it to rubles or dollars first. And, and it's at that point that the sanctions are enforced. The financial institutions that are allowing these funds to be spent or converted to other assets, that's where the, the sanctions obligations lie. Yep, exactly. That's honestly a much deeper conversation. <laughs> and we could get into a lot of the details there as well. But just to highlight one of them, you know, that's actually where the importance of having uh, firms that can perform forensics on the blockchain is important. Um, we, you know, on, on one hand, we, we always want to be policing bad activity. We want the society to have tools to be able to catch bad actors at what they're doing and punish them. And, and we, we can't lose sight of that as an effective and powerful tool to have. We can always debate whether or not, you know, the government should have that power. But the important thing is that the tool is at least available in the context that it needs to be available in. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the visibility is there. We can track illicit funds in crypto and we can, um, yeah, we can identify high risk transactions and, and fulfill the legal obligations that we have. Maybe just like a, a final question for you. Um, I guess, what, what do you think the nat natural next steps are for crypto donations in this conflict? I mean, do you think it's going to, we kind of saw a bunch of donations initially and then we saw it tail off. Then they announced the airdrop and it jumped up again, now it's tailing off again. Um, do you think crypto do donations are going to maintain or are going to continue to be a meaningful presence in the donation sphere or was it kind of a one-shot thing and now we're all over it? So it's already evolved quite a lot. So it started off with NGOs and the government and then it became um, charities and private organizations fundraising in crypto. What we're starting to see now is different, actually different parts of the Ukrainian government have their own fundraising campaigns. So, for example, the emergency services, the police now have their separate crypto fundraising campaign. And I think that allows people to decide how they want their crypto to be spent uh, within Ukraine. 
um, with quite a lot of specificity. Do you want it to go to the emergency services or to the military or to humanitarian aid? Um, you can decide that by exactly which address you're donating to. Awesome. Yep. Well, Tom, it's been a great conversation. Yes. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. We should honestly, we should uh, chat more often because um, I'm a huge fan of uh, <laughs> just the math behind these forensics. And I worked in that sphere for a little while at Coinbase and uh, I'm just like, I nerd out on this stuff, so. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, you can go deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. There's lots of fascinating aspects to it. Well, this certainly is a monumental moment for crypto. This is the first time where a nation state has requested crypto donations and is adopting and using the technology in a very meaningful way. It's also a worldwide stage. People around the world have donated to Ukraine and done it in a moment, in a flash. This technology is powerful for crowdfunding and I'm excited and passionate about the use cases we're gonna see in the future as well. I also thought it was interesting how Ukraine's business partners had to accept crypto, had to find a way to accept crypto and were willing to do it. And that represents a meaningful step change in crypto's adoption across the world. So this is obviously an ongoing conversation. There's a lot we could get into, a lot we could talk about. I'm curious if we got, got into all of it. So shoot me a comment. Let me know if you have more questions or comments. And also be sure to listen and subscribe, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also catch us on the web at coinbase.com slash around the block. You'll find long form research. You'll find our past podcasts. And as always, come back next week for more. Today's conversation is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice. Actual results may vary materially from any forward-looking statements made and are subject to risks and uncertainties. 